Today, we're with Pete A. Turner of the Break It Down Show. I want to put in the Pete A. Turner because that is his Twitter handle and the web address, and it's easy to forget and just drop in a Pete Turner. And Pete Turner is, well, you call yourself a spy. What I am, yes. How are you doing today, Pete? Man, I'm doing pretty good. I really appreciate the chance to be on your show, and I can't wait to have you on mine. Uh, Looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Now, I want to jump right into the spy bit, and then we'll go back in history. You and I went into the Army, I think, similar times. I went in 92. Okay. And you went in 94, I understand. That's right. Now, curiously, though, before you went in, you had a, a bachelor's degree in mass communications? Yeah, that's right. I went to college first. But you went in as an E4, I'm guessing, with the college? That's right. Exactly. You never pursued OCS or anything? Uh, you know, I didn't, wasn't that I didn't pursue it. It's just that every time I tried to pursue it, it got derailed by something. And, um, you know, it's one of those things where it's easier to not do it than do it. So, you know, you give me another crack at the Army at the exact same everything and very likely to become an officer. So it wasn't so much that I didn't pursue it. It's just that all of the pursuits ended in something else. Were you, were you in the same state I was in when I went in, which is essentially, I'm starving right now. <laughs> I need to have a gig. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know what it was like back in that era. It was the economy, especially when I graduated, was really bad. And then my university wasn't geared to help me figure out how to find a job in my field. You know, they, they said, Hey, you need to get an internship. That's what everybody does. And nobody gets paid and you get a bunch of coffee. And I'm like, well, that sounds terrible. <laughs> well, you know how to communicate, go communicate something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Talk to people. Yeah. So I literally couldn't find a job when I got out uh, for a variety of reasons. And so um, I needed experience and I was pushing shopping carts in the rain at Costco and I said, I, I've got to do something else. I just, I just have to do something besides this. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but sure, I, you know, it, it wasn't where I wanted to be or needed to be. So, yeah, I, I needed, a, I needed money. I needed a job. I needed to get out of my town before I just kept screwing. I didn't screw up a lot, but you know, I needed to go grow up. You're bored. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. When you went into the military, you lucked out with um, Meps. Yes. And that's the uh, military entrance processing system or whatever. I, I forget what it is. Right. Um, I'm guessing you did well in the ASVAB, et cetera, to get offered, whatever. Yeah. Yeah, I did really well. And, and I signed up at a time of the year when, you know, they had a lot of availability for things because, you know, I didn't <laughs> sign up in the summer, you know, and, and I was ready to go. Is that what I did? Yeah. Yeah. It's like buying a car. Like if everybody's buying a car in one time of the year, you know, and, and this was not by design. You know, I just, I got lucky in that. I picked the time of the year, a quarter when they had incentives and everything lined up. And and I did, I tested well. Okay. Well, I, I managed to get in with a 129 GT and there were only four jobs in the army when I went, supposedly. Holy shit, man. <laughs> Can we come and curse on your podcast? <laughs> yeah, it's fine. So yeah, they offered me uh, infantry, oh. artillery, um, cook, uh-huh. and I forget the uh, engineer, I think it was. Yeah, th- then if that's the case, yes, uh, I got very fortunate because we scored, <laughs> we scored similarly. And when I said the, you know, the MEPS recruiter wanted to sign me up for infantry, my recruiter walked in and said, this guy's going Intel. <laughs> and he yelled at her because <laughs> so, they were like, it's an $8,000 bonus. And I'm like, I could use $8,000. But, uh, but he stood up for me. And so uh, maybe I'm the only person ever, but my recruiter was fantastic. Yeah, mine wasn't allowed to enter the MEPS facility 
in Kansas City. So Jeez. I wound up as a cook because I said, oh, um, you'll let me write for the, the newspaper after I get there? Oh, well, then I'll take the one with the bonus and wind up a cook. Yeah. <laughs> well. <laughs> so good times all around. Um, different paths, therefore, for you and I. For sure. On that. What I find interesting, though, is you wind up in military intelligence at a fascinating juncture yeah. of history. I mean, the wall had fallen. Soviet Union was being blown apart, I know, because in 90, yeah, 94, 95, I was in Cuba in Gitmo um, handling refugees living on a Russian cruise ship. Wow. <laughs> I mean, and it was kind of ironic because they were saying that was the first time they had not been on that side of Cuba. Right. But um, wow. how did that affect you being in the crossover from cold war tactics to modern tactics? Yeah, it, it, we felt it for sure because everybody was trying to fight the fold gap. And really we still try to fight that. Uh, we were trained on Soviet, you know, counter Soviet kind of doctrine. And a lot of our tradecraft was focused on, you know, things that they did in Berlin because we were in Germany. Uh, those days were over. We knew that, but we didn't have any insight as to what else we were going to do. So literally my time in, in Germany, for my first assignment, we were transitioning to a more strategic, we were only going to carry M9s, not going to carry rifles anymore. And our right. unit was what they called a tactical unit. So we had a strategic missions when we were in garrison, but we were still a tactical asset in case anything happened. But since nothing was ever going to happen anymore, you know, we were trying to bolster our strategic mission. And it was this weird kind of, you know, you had to master these different th assets. So, so like you had to learn how to do surveillance, but you also knew had to know how to bound over watch, especially as like an augmentee in another unit. And so you had all these, there's way too many tasks to be good at. And so uh, uh, we didn't know what we were doing. We just kept busy doing what we could. So it's basically uh, spinning wheels and training because... I remember, you know, that's when I was into, and Clinton won the election in 94. Yes. Military wasn't really top of mind as the coolest thing to do. Right. I'm from Tucson, Arizona. You're from uh, California. Right. You don't have the highest respect for the military in either location either. Yeah, it was literally never part of my plan. It, you know, the day, the day I decided to maybe do it, maybe two weeks before I decided this possibility, me and another college grad were at Costco stocking early one morning. And he's like, you ever thought about being a spy? I've been reading Tom Clancy. And I'm like, I also have been reading Tom Clancy and I got to do something. <laughs> and so literally six weeks from that conversation, I was in the army. That's how much planning there was. <laughs> well, you were 22, right? 24 in my case. Yeah. Okay. Eh, about that. So yeah, we don't really think a whole hell of a lot. No. It's like wow. ready, fire, aim. Yeah, yeah, totally. I'm kind of taking you down the path because I know you did some work in Bosnia. That's right. A couple of years later. So I'm guessing you saw a little bit of action then, or was that mostly intelligence gathering versus um, fights directly? Yeah, no, I went in in the first big wave. So there was no actual fighting, although we did not know that at the time. So the Dayton Peace Accords had been signed. And we deployed shortly after that, but we didn't know if the accords were going to hold. And, and you remember how it was back then. It was like genocide, 
all these horrors and atrocities were happening, and there were 15 bazillion mines buried in the ground. Like every time they briefed us, the number of mines grew, and and I didn't know what to do with mines. I wasn't. We were trained on sort of like how to not get blown up if you found a mine, right. like obviously in the ground, but. Not if you didn't know where the mines were, you know, or if you didn't have a map for a mine. If you think about this, like you've got a thousand or so people in a battalion scattered everywhere because we're Intel assets. And my job is to be out every day away from the camp. I don't have a mine map. I just know that wherever I step, I need to make sure I pay attention. And so, yeah, there wasn't conflict, but there was conflict everywhere. You know, when you're when you're doing what I was doing. Well, I can imagine, and you're probably trying to second guess, like, well, they're not gonna put a mine there because they <laughs> use this particular path. Right. Yeah. So they're more likely to do this and-, and and keep this in mind, like before we deployed, right, right, as we were doing it, the people that were like the initial party, one of those guys drove slightly off a road and got blown up. And then he got a purple heart because of that. And you're like, Well, there you go. I don't want to be that guy. And then in my brigade, a guy got his face blown apart and he was killed, you know, a week into being there. So w- when we were worried about mines, it was a legitimate thing. People were getting blown oh, up sure. from this. Yeah. Wasn't that the area that Di went to, Princess Di, back when she was alive? Sure. Went to go with the kids in the mines and all that? Yeah. A lot of photo ops? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Exactly right. She was in that area. Worried about all the mines that were left behind. Yeah. So, so there was, there was that kind of tension. And there were a bunch of people that, you know, several months prior were a bunch of, of hardened war criminals, warlords, you know, battle ready guys who were fighting a very asymmetrical fight. So we didn't know at the time that everybody was done fighting there. And really just there, you know, you go down the road a little bit and there was still plenty of fighting those guys. So it just kind of depended on where you were. But we, yeah, it was, it was an unusual time because again, we didn't really know how to train for this mission. We just kind of went. So most of our training was how to survive in cold weather. And even then it was rudimentary stuff like don't put your bare hands on metal because your hands will get cold and you'll get frostbite. Make sure you wear your clothes loose and in layers and that kind of thing. So sure. Not great training overall, but the best that we could do. Well, it makes sense too. You hadn't done anything. Or what Korea was the last time winter conflict was ever a question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Our our battalion commander said, if anybody brings summer boots to this conflict, I'll give them an Article Fifteen. This was in let's say October. So you didn't bring them. You did what you're told. And then January, the dead of winter, there's ice encasing every single tree. I looked down at his feet, and he's got summer boots on. Oh, <laughs> so I was like, "Wait a second here, hold on." <laughs> it's pretty funny. Well, maybe he's Winhoff. He has no nerve endings. Yes, maybe. <laughs> but anyhow, right. yeah. So it was it was a, a, an interesting time to to say the least. I mean, I was fortunate to go out every day and get the chance to really encounter the Bosnians and talk to just thousands of them. Now, this is your first introduction to. Um I don't know if we'd say Islam or Muslims or kind of the different uh, cultures yeah. early on, right? Yeah, but this is, and I don't want to be derogatory towards Bosnians because they were great to me, but um, these guys were Jack Muslims. They all drank. They all ate pork yeah. because, you know, they just, they weren't real. They're ethnically Muslim, kind of like um, yeah. a lot of Jews who eat ham. Sure. Yeah. 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 Very, very similar. So yes, there were, they were Muslim, but it, it wasn't, you did, if you didn't know that you would never know, 
You would just you just you would have to pay attention to understand that. That makes sense. Okay. I mean, we have. I mean, there are a lot of uh, anti-Semitic regions in the world mm-hmm. where Jews will be just like everybody else. They don't really celebrate anything or follow right. any of, them, and they're still not well liked. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Yeah. And and really. It did matter there as far as who was what and what they were, but don't think it in terms of religion. It was it was strictly Serb, Croat, Bosnian, and how those guys get along, and then how they reckoned with their own inter intergroup relationships. My mom's a Serb, my dad's a Croat. You know, we <laughs> we don't know what to do. We're just you know because that's a lot of what had happened. So as they were sorting out this land stuff, they also had to sort out their own family history of, of, of intermingling between the groups, which, which is really just normal, but it, it creates problems for some people. Well, it's a tribal situation. Yes. So now after you finished with Bosnia, you came back, I believe you got out and somehow went into the reserves and we're working at insurance industry in Chicago. Or yeah, something? yeah, that's true. I, before that, though, I, when I came back from Bosnia, I ended up going to the schoolhouse in Fort Huachuca. So I, I was teaching okay. source operations there, which was is an important thing because that's really where I learned how to. I learned the theory behind what I was doing, Cause, you know, because mm. we really weren't trained. So I was able to. Uh, go and actually two different times people that were senior to me in my last unit that were in Bosnia with me came through the schoolhouse and I got to be the master at this point which is kind of funny but uh yeah so I spent time at Wachuca and then you know when I got out in 99 and started my regular life in the insurance industry where I, I fit in like a greasy sandwich at the prom you know it just it was not it was not the right thing at all while you were there I know that you uh, told the story on another show that you read uh, like every manual and kind of got into trouble. By yes. Being too industrious. Yes. <laughs> Why but, would you do that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're that bored. Right. Well, they didn't have real work for me. I was sort of just, um, honestly, I was sort of just an intern, you know, all the way back to the beginning. And they're like, you know, you have to wait. It's 10 months before the official training starts. So just learn what you can along the way. Well, you know, <laughs> I'm going to read all these books. I'm going to read through all the products. I'm going to try to start understanding this stuff. And, you know, it was sinking in, but it's a big industry that I had no experience in. And uh, they, you know, every time I took a step to the left, they're like, everybody takes a step to the right. We don't know why you went left. So everything I did was not in sim- simpatico with what they wanted. It, I just did not fit in there. Was it because you were given more free reign? In the army, because um, it sounds like maybe you're just not into a, a chain of command specifically. You know, I, I I can't deny that. I don't, you know, I, I want to do well. I had just finished my master's degree, so I was in good reading shape. And I, I wanted to do well, but I didn't know how to do well there. I'd never had a corporate job. So it was like I was a college graduate in terms of my experience in the corporate machine. But I had professional level skills. So they would say things like, you don't have to account for where you're going. We trust you. And I'm like, with what? <laughs> so What's your master's degree? Yeah, yeah. We trust you to do the right thing. And I'm like, okay, well, I'm going to go read this entire multi-volume set. And, and then I find out that that's not what they want. Or I'll give you another example. We're going to do a pretest before you go to this training. 
And so uh, if you're not comfortable with the topic, I-, I would leave that blank. And I'm like, yeah, cool. So I got like a 12 on the test out of like 100. And, and so did my peer who was freshly hired as well. And they're like, what the hell happened? Did you not learn anything? And I'm like, well, these, you told me to, like, if I didn't understand something, I need to understand this stuff. Yeah, I'm familiar with it. I can tell you a lot about it, but I certainly, I don't want to have them think that I know this stuff because I guessed and get an answer right. So when they had told me to take the test accordingly to, to identify where I might need help, I needed all the help because I'm still learning all this stuff and they thought I was a dummy and they're like, no, you should guess. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I should guess? You know, like you're going to teach me about the insurance industry. I'm not trying to get an A on this test. I'm trying to learn how to do this stuff. So it made sense in my brain. And that's something very military-like. Like, don't say that you know something. Ask a question. Raise your hand. So I, I was punished for doing what I was supposed to do, identify that, hey, I have a lot of learning to do here. Please teach me. And, and they didn't like that. Were you E5 or E6 when you got out? I was an E5 when I got out. Okay. So you had to go through the sergeant's board. And what they teach you at the board is never answer the question directly. Always say that's in AR, blah, 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 whatever manual. You're never to quote a regulation directly. You're to quote which manual to look it up. Yeah. I dominated boards. I never lost a board. I was undefeated. I never, I hardly ever got any questions wrong. I was excellent at boards. I was great at that stuff. I was really not great at being in corporate America though. Right about this time or somewhere in there, nine 11 happened. Yeah. And you essentially said three bags full, right? Yeah, absolutely. I was in the reserves at the time and the first I was working, this is a store. A lot of people have heard this, but I was working selling computers at CDW, another place where I did not fit in. And hmm. The first plane hits, and all of a sudden, heads start popping up in our cubicle farm and looking around, and there's a lady screaming in my ear on the phone, and when that second plane hit, I took my headset off, hung up, went and saw my boss and said, I've got other places to be. He knew I was in the Army. You know, he knew exactly what I was talking about, and he just, you know, blank stare, because who had anything better than that? And I reported to my unit, and I was the first guy, because I was right there by my unit. It was a couple miles away. So I was there before the buildings fell. So between the second plane hitting and the first building falling, I was I was at my unit ready to do whatever, and I'd already been a hold of my commander. So it's it's uh, one of those circumstances where, yeah, it's Chicago. We don't know if we're next. You know, easily could have been, and so I, I needed to be ready to go do whatever it was that was coming. Yeah, I remember during nine eleven, I was traveling across the country with my wife, and we were in. Um, George Bush's hometown huh. at that point. And I was like, I don't want to hang out in this area. Yeah. <laughs> we we got to go. We have new plans. Yeah. Because you don't know. All of a sudden, every place is a target. Chicago, certainly a target. George Bush is part of Texas. Yeah, absolutely a target. And at that time, they thought there were a lot more planes up in the air. I remember all that. Mm-hmm. And then the creepy silence of bad radio signals and poor channels going across the country in the middle of the desert, just going, do you hear something? And then you hear about the people. I mean, it's a surreal time. It was very, it was very surreal. And then being in Chicago and not seeing any airplanes in the sky, something you don't notice until they're not there and likely never to happen in someone's lifetime again, either, you know, it's just such a, a unique thing to have happen. Horrible, but unique. So that sent you to, I'm guessing, your first location, Afghanistan, or am I incorrect? Yeah, so I deployed 
immediately with the reserves by October, I was already on the ground in the Middle East and uh, and working. And um, that's a whole different story. But basically, I was I got into the reserves as a transportation guy, and mm-hmm. um, you know I was immediately their their two their intel person. And then I worked on getting out of that unit, which the commander said, as soon as everything's set up, we'll send you over to the intel unit because you shouldn't be here. You should be with those guys. And so as that all was happening, I had to do my annual training requirements. So they deployed us over to uh, to Egypt. And I ended up going on the daily MWR tour out to all the Egyptian antiquity sites as a, a civilian clothes wearing spy to oversee what basically there were there were younger counterintelligence agents and collectors that didn't they didn't have enough manning to have, you know, like a warrant officer above them. So basically I just acted as a person I didn't have to report, I didn't have to do anything other than just make sure that things looked and sounded all right and then provide expertise should it be needed. Okay, and you did that then um, for a while, I'm guessing. Yeah. Now were you six at the time, or no? No, I was only five. I never actually never got up to E six ever. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I when I was in the army, I had the ability to get promoted. My boss offered it to me, and I knew I was going to get out. So I didn't want to. I had a lot of points. I mean, I, there was no basically there was no way at the time when I was in the army. You know, the max points were 800 points that you could get to be promoted. I had 792 at any given moment. And so, right. you know, it, it, and easy, easily could have got those last few points. So I would have been first in line to get promoted, but I also knew I was getting out and I didn't need to be an E6 for anything. Everything I was doing wasn't rank based. So it just wasn't a goal for me or anything. And I'd rather have someone have that chance and maybe build a career from there, you know? Okay. So this will get some clarity on it. I'm, I'm guessing then you were only back in and over there for a few years then and then you got out and went over again as a civilian how does this break down yeah so i was over in in egypt for a very short amount of time uh and i almost got volunteer well, i did get volunteered for the qrf but they filled the slots what Just, is that uh, a quick reaction for us so we weren't sure what was going to happen all right it was it was 10 11 and then it was um 11 11 uh, november of 2000 i'm sorry it was november of 2001 so we didn't know who was going to need to do what. The battle plans were still being drawn. So they wanted a force in the area, just manning, you know, just so they had something there. And so a number of people from this movement stayed. And I was on the list of people to stay. But if, if they wanted a thousand, they must have had a thousand and a thousand before they got to me. But I was told that I was like right on the line of the cut, like I was within 10 people of, of the cutting line. So. Almost had to stay indefinitely, but actually got to come home. And then it turned out that I got out uh, in 2002. So right afterwards, my time in the Army was completely done. No recall ability. I completed my full obligation. And so uh, then I came back in as a contract element to support counterintelligence teams. Because again, like, like before in Egypt, there aren't enough of me to go around. So they wanted someone to help handle things that the newer, freshly minted agents couldn't handle because there just wasn't enough expertise to do that mission at a high level because they're, mm. they're just, you know, there weren't enough of us. And so you, were, I'm guessing, went in with like a Blackwater type company? Yeah, yeah. I went in with the company. Um, There's a, a bunch of different ones, but yes, I was with a major contract company that held a line item for doing Intel work overseas. So yeah, basically the government was trying to buy capacity from the people that you know, had left the service with, within a reasonable amount of time. So a bunch of the uh, older warrants, people that were retired, guys like me, you know, we were able to sign up and go out and help out with these um, 
these agents or, or places where there weren't even any agents because they're just, they literally weren't enough of us. So before the military could get caught up on the Manning, you know, they needed something and that was us. Well, and also you probably made pretty good money, but you had a little, maybe a little more flexibility. Yeah, we had a lot of flexibility. It was very lethal and, and dangerous where we were. So our main job was to survive. And the commander basically said, yeah, whatever you guys need to do, however you can help, we'll take your help. No one knows my job better than me. So I know how to provide for the commander what they need. And they all bought in, into that plan. Like, yeah, okay, obviously, you know what you're doing. Just do what you do and let us know how to support you. And then I would start creating products and becoming valuable to them. Now, can you give me a day in the life of Pete in the sandbox? Uh, in that era, sure. Basically, you work long hours. You try to talk to as many people as you can. And keep in mind, we're a small element. And as much as the commander wants to support us, we can't go to the commander with every problem. So we had to build an internal network that's what helped us support ourselves as well as an external network. If you've got a four-person team, you're, you should be talking to 25 to 30 people a day, whether it's locals or army people, in a dedicated way to continue to expand and make friends. You're inviting people to lunch. You're doing everything you can to engage people in a positive way so that you become a known item on that camp. Okay, so to draw a parallel then. This is very similar to uh, corporate networking. I'm guessing you tracked that you talked to fill-in-the-blank person, you did this, you talked about this, and you kept records of whatever you discussed, and it might not even be relevant to specific intelligence. It might be that they're, they just had a birthday with their kid, that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have a CRM. You know, there wasn't something like that. But amongst us on the team, we definitely were talking about who we were talking to. Um, those of us that weren't really good at this had to ride with somebody else. And one of the things I learned a long time ago in the military, especially, is it's better to go with two people. And that way, there's there's a third party to hear things, to make sure that things are said. If one of you has problems saying things in the right way to get what you need, uh, you've got someone else there to say, let me try a different angle. So you're not good cop, bad cop, but you're trying to find ways to get things to happen because the army in particular is supposed to say no to whatever contractors want, even though by regulation, they have to support what we wanted. So right. you were always talking to people and we were always cross-talking about what was discussed and how we discussed it and holding our ground when we had to and giving ground when we had to do something because it's never how the statement of work is written. It's how, it's how you perform on that camp for that unit. I met with the locals. And the, the and people, you were. yeah. Well, with the locals, it's a totally different thing. You're, you're again, you're trying to build trust with these guys, and uh, and it's really hard to get off camp safely. So you're going out with patrols, which is borderline illegal. Illegal. Like if someone wanted to watch me work, and they were a bean counter, they would probably say I was breaking the law. But if you see the commander, they would say that person's a vital part of my operation, and I authorize them to do that. You know, so it's one of those areas where it, it was it, it wasn't even gray; it was black and white, depending on who you were talking to. So you had to operate in an area that was dangerous, physically, but also professionally, and there was a lot of accounting for that. But when we were able to talk to locals, which was every day, we were constantly looking for things, trying to find out who was a threat, and just to give you an idea of the threat in the area, we literally had a guy blow up, blow himself up in his car right outside the office 
it was uh, there was a giant cement barrier between us and him but parts of that dude fell into our little courtyard area and i say courtyard it was just like a, a hallway between the big wall and our front door so parts of him and his car rained down in our space so when i say this area was dangerous it was extremely dangerous and people were dying every day primarily iraqis so we also had to account for their well-being when we met and so we were surreptitious in how we met people to protect them but also we had to do the same thing to protect us because you expose yourself as much as you're exposing them how do you deal with that do you compartmentalize and just say oh if i die tomorrow i die tomorrow or what yeah i mean the time for worrying about that had passed you know you take on the job now you can certainly just stay on the camp and sit in your chair and do nothing all day but there's people dying there's there's service members you know under attack we would get mortared every day so I, i'm not wired and the guys on my team weren't wired to sit around and and just do the minimum you know which can be honestly it can be zero we wanted to do something more and once you make that decision, look, when I went to Iraq, I got there right as they were kidnapping contractors on, on a regular basis. We were supposed to drive in a soft-sided vehicle from Baghdad all the way up to Mosul, which is hundreds of miles, through a lot of dangerous territory. And granted, you would go with the military patrol, but we also have airplanes and helicopters flying that route every day. So we elected to put our vehicles in there because it's just an unnecessary risk to take. Yes, the army has to go do it every day, but you know it's long, it's slow, it's obvious, and it's super dangerous. So we flew ourselves up there because the military does that. And it was due in part to the danger that was going on every single day. So once you get into that environment, you have to say to yourself, I will not be taken with bullets left in the chamber. Like there has to be a line that you say anything past this line is now fighting time. And you have to hold that true. You don't wait to find out you waited too long. You wait to the point where this is the spot where I, I have my last stand and it starts and either I survive or I don't. And then you don't worry about that anymore. You just know that that line is right there, and hopefully you don't get too close to it. I know you felt like there was possibly some bad decisions that were made around you. Sure. Uh, do you want to discuss that at all? I mean, I don't know if you're talking about a specific time or story, but of course. I mean, we've made all kinds of bad decisions. You know, we <laughs> the Iraqis were great at telling on each other, and we were bad at figuring out who was telling the truth. We wanted people to go kill. And when someone offered someone to go kill, we very often took, and I'm saying we, the big we, not me, sure, sure. but, um, and I, I'm certainly not, I, I certainly have culpability into this. You know, you, the ability to check your source and figure things out was just extremely limited. So you're trying to find bad people and there were bad people everywhere and there were people you're telling on people. So uh, a lot of those kind of decisions happen. That's combat though. But were those actually actionable intelligences or were those like Hatfield and McCoy type of situations too, where they can take advantage of this force in town and get revenge on the other family who stole a chicken or something? Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a combination of all that stuff. So there's actionable things. You always heard about things happening. And then at some point, you just don't have enough intel. And, and you just have to make a call. This is the combat part of it, right? Like you just, the fog of war is all around you. So you hear about something happening. You hear about this person doing it. And, and so you act on it because you have to, because people are getting shot every day with the stuff that's moving around you. So by the time you validated something, it was gone. 
you know, so so you don't have the luxury of waiting around. You have to you have to act, and that's what the military does. So for sure, there were people that were killed because they were vendettas out there, and, and we exacted them. You know, that that's for sure a thing that happened. I'll even say frequently that people were killed who didn't need to die because that's the nature of combat in that kind of environment. Now, I hate to put you in the corner on it, but after all of these years, was this overall worthwhile? That's a big question. Uh, I think, I think the big answer is yes. The day to day right now answer is no. You know, we, we weren't prepared. We didn't train to do what had to be done. And so a lot of people on all sides were irreparably harmed, if not killed, by this. Um, but my response to this is always on nine twelve. Who who had a better answer? You know, on January 1, 2003, who had a better answer? Nobody did. No one was prepared for this. There was no great path. We we picked a fight with Al-Qaeda in the desert, right where we wanted to fight. And they showed up and, and we beat the hell out of them. You know, we took a, an unknown threat and gathered it in an open space where we had all the tactical dominance in the world. And we made them pay. Now, is that justification for everything else that happened? Absolutely not. But there are... There's a lot. It's a complicated thing. It's it's tough to put a yes no answer. I mean, was Truman right for dropping a bomb on Nagasaki and Hiroshima? Yes, no. It's always going to be that way. So that our fight, I think, is the same way. Where it, it didn't work out the way we could have wished it would have, but was there a better answer? I, I don't think so. Okay. Well, I mean, that's an interesting perspective, and I, I, it's hard because everybody can armchair quarterback. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I would say armchair quarterback from the field. You know, as you're running around trying to keep people alive, come make your decisions in that environment where there's grinding humanity all around you and come up with a better answer. I just don't think it was reliably possible. Now, do you take your wins on the personal level versus the macro, as in Johnny Walker and his family are here in America. You can celebrate that as a victory and an achievement versus worrying about the bigger picture in some ways. Yeah, I think you have to. I, I'm, I'm a ground truth guy. And so, uh, and for me, ground truth is more accurate than even boots on the ground because boots on the ground aren't prepared. You know, they're prepared to do something and then they get there and they do something else. My job was to stay there and understand all of those things and get the army to do the thing. And I say the army because they primarily were the ones that I supported, but my ability to understand the ground truth and what was real in town and what was real on camp and blend those two things. That's what made me valuable. That's why I got to have a guy like Johnny, you know, on my team was because people got that I got it. And so that that's what I can measure myself against is I, I don't presume to assume and, it, I, and nobody should that they had a lasting impact on what's there. If I was to take them to the camp that they went to, it, they wouldn't be able to find anything that lasted and left any kind of stability for Iraq, for Afghanistan. That's just not how it works. But they did pour their heart and soul into what was there. They had great intention. It's just this stuff is exceptionally hard to get right. It doesn't mean you don't go do it because there's a cost for that. But when I measure my successes, 
it's in that I constantly got better. I became a pro at it and I can help flatten the ramp for somebody else that's going to go next and say, here are areas where you have to focus and you'll have more success if you do this. If, they, if they're able to do it, great, but I can't even promise that they would be able to because what I'm asking of them is very hard. Now, I think you've mentioned this before. You have, may not have said it in this manner, but we may have had cultural problems because of our transactional nature, whereas I've always found the culture to be, A, it's an honor culture, and B, they're very big into hospitality there. Sure. Was that something you worked with as in it's never going to be fast. It's always going to kind of, you kind of talk around things a little bit. You sort of have to build a relationship before you find anything out and you sort of have to wait until they actually volunteer something of their own. Yeah. The thing with culture and the military and people in general is defining it. What's culture, you know, and, and the de- definition I work from is anything that can't be defined by DNA, which means pretty much everything, right? I mean, obviously there's nature, but anything else is us. Like how we build our roads, that's culture. How you fall in love, that's culture. So when I I look at it that way, it's not my job to not offend someone. It's my job to understand their culture. So I, I can't tell you how many times I was briefed on not showing the bottom of my shoes and not eating with my left hand. And I'm here to tell you, when I asked around, they're like, yeah, you can eat with your left hand. You're an American. You're not Islamic. You're not us. And uh, we're positive that you get to clean your hands way more often than we do. So do what you want to do. And so that was my job was to understand that. And they're like, yeah, you're like when you would sit down on the floor, I'm like, my legs don't bend. I don't want to offend you by pointing my shoes at you, but my legs just don't bend very good. I, I suck at sitting Indian style. And again, same lesson. Like, yeah. We're not taking offense to that. Don't don't worry. You're fine. And I'm like, oh, man, that's great to know. So my job was to go out and understand those things by being curious, understanding, and accepting. I don't have to agree with what they agree with or what they find to be acceptable, but I do have to understand that is their reality. And it's more about understanding what I call the infrastructure of the mind. You know, their uncles, their aunts, their moms, their dads, they taught them to do things a certain way. And until... Someone else comes along with a better influencer. There's nothing more powerful than people's community, their surrounding, their friends, their family. So I can't presume to be more influential than those people until I understand the influence that they have and where it comes from. That's fascinating, though. So you're essentially, you pay them respect for what they have, but you may not, you're not imitating them. Right. You're giving them the, the respect to say, I know I should be doing this or this doesn't work right. I'm not trying to offend you. Right. You think about it this way. I can't Iraq and Iraqi. And that's what we're trying to do is like, oh, I can negotiate with you. Really? You're going to negotiate with this Iraqi guy across a language, across a religion, across a culture. And you've done nothing to earn that. Right. You, you think you're going to win this thing? No. Now, now you're offensive because you've undermined their thousands of years of history, their multi-generational aspects of how they make decisions, you know, have them teach you how to negotiate is a much better position to, to work from than coming in and trying to uh, out swagger the swagger. You can't out Iraq and Iraq. You can't out Afghan and Afghan. You just can't do it. You don't, don't try and you'll be in a lot better position. And they might be amused by you and, and grow to like you anyway. Yeah. I mean, everybody wants to, you know, look, 
the other thing is about culture and you go to a place like this is you can't be the smartest person in the room. You have to be teachable. You have to have things. you do. Even if you know the thing, you want to understand how they know it and why they know it and what they know. So if you don't approach it from that angle, you're arrogant and you're ignorant at the same time because you don't even understand how I've seen a state department person look at a governor. We're in the governor's center where he governs, where he is the governor. And the state department person told the governor what he was going, what the governor was going to do. And then when the governor said, no, that's not what I want to do. I want to do this. The state department person rolled his eyes at the governor. Ooh. That state department person could not be convinced that he had insulted the governor, even though the governor got up, and walked out at that moment. He's like, no, no, no. He, he does that all the time. I'm like, oh, really? Because I saw him 10 minutes later. And he was fuming mad at you. <laughs> well, that's probably true. He probably insults him all the time. Right. He was sick of it. He was like <laughs> this younger guy who's not in char- charge of anything as far as this Afghan was concerned and uh, is an open insult in front of all his, uh, some of the governor's peers. Oh, sure. yeah. It's really, really bad. But th- and the thing that's worse is that the state department person didn't even understand or wouldn't accept that they had done it. So it's willful ignorance. So that's the that's the difference between when you get culture right and wrong is is when I'll give you a different example and this isn't to make make it back super Pete but this really happened was we were in the area we were so pervasive that the Taliban learned about us and asked for a meeting with us we didn't know this was happening the Afghans did it and they set it up but we were we, we, my partner Rich and I we were signed off on by the Taliban as being honorable men of education and and not a problem in the area. So that's the difference is when without your knowledge, you get tasked to go out and see the Taliban, you meet with them, and you're found to be credible. Big difference. Yeah. So a little dose of humility goes a long way. Yeah. I mean, look, how, how dare I come in and assume to know to I'm going to come and prove the condition of anybody without knowing their current condition. <laughs> okay. Um, you know, that doesn't work that that's not how humans behave. You know, it's, it's, it's like anything like with us, with politics, right? Like we have this debate going on with, with the, uh, electoral college. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Don't force your opinion on somebody else legally. Like that's not what we do. Go, go work within the government and go value your vote more by investigating or investing your time into the government. I'm not trying to make a big political statement, but I'm just saying, Go do something that either contributes to make the government a better place from, from what your point of view is and value your vote more than just voting and leave the other person alone or vice versa. If the other person wants to change the, the way we elect a president, they get to do that. They get to push forward and everything else. Go, go do something else. Don't, don't engage in a, a negative adversarial uh, position with someone who doesn't agree with you culturally because the only way to get this stuff right is to get to your combined goal through their path. If I'm the, if, if I'm the, the person who comes into the situation and I encounter an Afghan and I'm trying to accomplish something, if they lay out a path that gets me to where I'm going to go, I'm going to take their path every time because they're going to get what they want, I'm going to get what I want, and we're going to do it with an easier way rather than me knocking down a new path and if it's not quite there if it's close enough yeah you'll round up yeah you round up because you're in a really complicated place and now you've also got this friend that's like wow i'm fascinated by how you do this or tell me more you know and, and you you get to get more wins much culture works in that it's when you stack wins 
it's easier to stack wins. When you go around and you make everybody angry, it just doesn't get any easier. Well, now to wrap this session up, because I want to have you back. There's kind of a second half to your life. You're running the Break It Down show, and I'm hugely into interviewing, if you hadn't figured that out. Yeah. And I want to talk about the uh, skills involved and body language and things like that. Glad to do it. So where can people get a hold of you now? You can get me on all social media at Pete A. Turner. You can go to the Break It Down show. But just if you, if you tweet Pete A. Turner, if you go on Facebook, Pete A. Turner, uh, Instagram, Pete A. Turner, just if you focus there, um, I'll, I'll watch the Break It Down stuff. But that's how you get a hold of me. And I want to talk to you. I want to help you out. I want to, I want to understand what you're trying to do. Perfect. And I hope you're willing to come back for the second part. Absolutely. Love to do it. Thanks for coming on, man. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Welcome, everybody, to this promo for my show, Business with Super Joe Pardo, where I break down business lessons week after week after week after week after week. Whether you are new or a seasoned vet at business operations, my show will help you take your business game to the top. Looking forward to meeting you over at superjoepardo.com. Welcome to Growth Mindset University. My name is Jordan Paris, 21-year-old author and host of this show. And with this show, you and I will embark on a journey to learn the things that we should have learned in school but did not, so that we may take control of our lives while fulfilling our vision of success. Each episode will feature a brand new lesson, and now it's time for today's lesson. So put your thinking cap on because school is now in session. Hey, are you a podcaster or wannabe podcaster? The Mid-Atlantic Podcast Conference is the place to be September 6th and 7th in Atlantic City, New Jersey. It's by podcasters for podcasters with a focus on creativity, community building, and turning your podcast into your business. Learn more at midatlanticpodcast.com.